listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. We're speaking with Tom Gallagher, the CEO of Dairy Management Inc., the National Dairy Checkoff Organization. Tom, welcome to Dairy Voice, and we appreciate chatting with you today. Thanks, Joe. Recently, uh, I heard you make some comments about your concerns, the Humane Society of the U.S. and other animal rights activists that are trying to divide the dairy industry and create a, a rift between large farms, small farms, organic farms, conventional farms. Uh, you were quite adamant about that, if, if you will, at, at your comments during World Dairy Expo. Uh, you might share those concerns. I'd be interested to hear about that. Sure. You know, I think every farmer in agriculture, not just dairy, and every leader in agriculture needs to be aware of what uh, these activists are doing. First of all, they're very well funded. They have one simple goal, and that is the elimination of animal agriculture. What they're doing, uh, for example, within dairy, however, is they've created other organizations that are shells. So you take the Humane Society of the United States, which wants all animal agriculture ended. They've created a company called OCM, Organization for Competitive Markets. Well, that sounds rather uh, unattacking, uh, if you want to say that word, but... Uh, they're really a face for HSUS and a front. And what these groups, like the ones I mentioned, are doing is they're going to small farmers and saying, gee, we're not really against you, but like you, we're against the big farms, anything over 200 in size, 200 cows. So work with us to give us credibility in government, Capitol Hill, uh, regulatory and otherwise, and we'll put the big farms out of business, and that'll really help you. You know, small farmers, particularly at these economic times, like all size farms, are vulnerable to uh, to these kind of thoughts coming from people that they don't really understand necessarily or haven't been identified as their enemy that wants them out of business. So we really have seen uh, a step up in the activity from these activists, and what they're doing is far more dangerous than a video. They are dividing the industry against itself, pitting people against each other. Other, which will ultimately, uh, their goal will be to put us all out of business. That certainly is a concern, and uh, you can see that in the in the press. But speaking of the the small farms, the large farms, you've spoken recently about uh, how you feel this diversity of the U.S. dairy industry, with large farms, small farms, warm climate, colder climates, is a is a real strength. How do you see that that issue? Yeah, particularly when we uh, speak to. Uh, Customers like pizza customers or food service customers or when Secretary Vilsack travels internationally on the export front. The fact that we have such a uh, diversity of farm sizes, farm types, geographies, weather conditions is really to our strength. It helps insulate us from a production standpoint on a global basis. You know, I, I do not see an issue of large versus small. We benefit all farmers in the checkoff when we sell a pound of product. Everybody benefits. But um, I think that as leaders, it's our responsibility to really paint a picture for dairy farmers of what the future could look like for all sizes. And that's something uh, that we're working on. And it, it doesn't mean that everybody will prosper, succeed, stay in business, but we can paint a picture of what are the kinds of things and the opportunities that they can do. And then it's kind of up to them as the good best businessmen and women they are to take advantage of those. 
I think I confess you're the first uh, dairy leader that I've heard uh, talk about that. I, I wonder if, uh, and this is just purely a, a thought that occurs to me, it may or may not be relevant, but as we look at the U.S. economy and we see the, the frustration of workers who've been, factory workers who've been put out of business by either jobs going overseas or automation. We see miners uh, put out of work by the changing economy and natural gas, and we see increasing numbers, unfortunately, of dairy farmers leaving the industry too. I, I wonder if as a, as a society, we can't do a better job of, of helping folks make a transition. I think we have to, but uh, I think there's something different about food production in America than maybe some of the other areas. And, and that is, I think, if you look at the United States, particularly in dairy, we can produce food more sustainably and efficiently at competitive market rates than anyone else in the world. The key to all of that being successful is that competitive market rates are not subsidized by other countries. So Europe uh, subsidizes their farmers to a certain degree and they can undersell the market and our farmers get hurt. But if current administration is effective at developing not just free trade, but fair trade. If the American farmer is put on a level playing field with anyone else, we will compete and succeed. That perhaps leads us to chat a little bit about U.S. dairy exports. It seems like Secretary Vilsack has recently made some comments about how encouraged he is and with some of the opportunities in the export markets, in spite of the trade turmoil, or maybe because of it. How do you, from your point of view, assess the international situation? Well, up until uh, this year, even with the reverse tariffs, exports were growing at a very strong pace. Now this year, because of uh, China, which really uh, was a great emerging market for us, being kind of close to all of dairy until recently, we're really hurt, hurting, struggling uh, on the export market. So. Let me say this. In the domestic market, we've seen through the first six months of the year an incredible growth, almost 3% domestic consumption. That's about 3 billion pounds incremental. At a time when the American uh, size of uh, consumer, the number of people in America, is really flat. So that really means per capita consumption of particularly cheese and butter are increasing dramatically. We're at the highest per capita sales of butter we've been in 50 years. But those increases have been offset due to the tariffs and other factors the first six months of the year. Now, positive going forward is, you know, the president announced they're close to a final deal with Japan. Hopefully the Congress will act on the USMCA and some positive news in the last week on China. Plus, the secretary visited China about three, four weeks ago and visited some of his former contacts and explained to them the value of whey permeate in, in restoring the health of their swine population, because, you know, they've had quite an issue there. They've lost about 30 to 40 percent of their swine population. About a week after he made that visit, Chinese announced they were removing tariffs on that and a few other dairy products. So, we are really, as dairy farmers, entering the fifth year of very difficult times. Prices moved up a bit, but they needed to last longer and be better. But exports, as these deals get done, exports will grow again. Here's a word from our sponsor, INTL FC Stone. 
How could the dairy markets be impacted by the global economy next year? Come to Vision 2020, Global Markets Outlook, next February in Orlando and find out. INTL FC Stone's premier event will combine industry-leading economic and commodity outlooks all in one conference. Registration opening soon. For details, visit ifcs.co slash vision2020. Again, that's ifcs.co slash vision2020. And we're back. You talked about just a moment ago some of the increasing consumption of dairy in the U.S. Obviously, that's DMI's focus is to provide consumers with more and more dairy products. What are some of the key aspects that that you've been, key priorities that you've been working on lately at DMI? There's three things that are really driving the increase of consumption in cheese and butter. First is the research, nutrition research, that we have funded over the last 18 years to prove that dairy fat is not the enemy. You know, for years, our dietary guidelines said stay away from fat, but they said carbs are fine, and we watched people become more and more obese. Community is starting to understand through the 59 research projects we've done about full fat, and that others then have also done, that that was wrong thinking. Fat being back as a, a positive, we see a growth in all the full fat products across the board. Uh, so that's helped all the products and cheese and butter certainly have benefited. For cheese, food service, like our work with McDonald's, our work with uh, Taco Bell and others, uh, has really turned around the consumption of cheese and other products at those outlets. Remember, each day, millions and millions of people eat those outlets, and we are the people through the dairy farmers, through the checkoff, that develop those products with those companies. So that's been a big driver of cheese consumption for the last 12 years. Third area is, is pizza. Pizza for from the years 2004, five through 2009, pizza and pizza cheese, cheese on pizza uh, was on a decline. And that's 25% of the cheese consumption in this country. So as we work with pizza companies to put more cheese on their pizza to benefit their consumers and to grow cheese, we've seen a resurgence of pizza and cheese. So those two factors, cheese at food service and cheese on pizza, are really driving this incredible growth of per capita cheese consumption. And I've read in some uh, media that doesn't understand how farmers are paid. Well, relationships with McDonald's or Taco Bell or pizza companies only benefit large farmers. I think that those folks who are writing that have no idea farmers are paid. You know, if you sell, whether it's at McDonald's or the mom and pop uh, hamburger store or Domino's or the mom and pop pizza store, we sell more product. Every farmer in this country benefits from increased sales. Let's uh, turn our attention. Let's chat a little bit about fluid milk. Obviously, uh, in some ways, a pain point, but you also have recently talked about the revitalization of that category and some of the factors that go into uh, selling products, fluid products that, that are popular in the marketplace with growing popularity. How do you assess the fluid situation these days? 
Well, been the same and unchanged for a number of years as much as we've made some small incremental progress. And the challenges are many. You know, the idea that if people just understood the nine nutrients in milk, they drink more of it. Well, they do understand it. The problem is the product is no longer relevant to the way they live their life. The majority of our milk comes still in the form of white gallon, which was fine in the 50s and 60s when families ate together and they needed large volumes. But what they're looking for now with less less than 20% of people eating as a family even once a week, they need things that are more on the go, things that are shelf stable. And the idea that whole milk is going to turn the category around because of the fat story, it has helped it marginally. It's not going to be the answer. Because people now have gallons of whole milk, they're not going to come rushing back to the category. It's going to, it's going to help, but it's going to take innovation. And innovation takes money and it takes patience. And so, you know, we're working with dairy companies to try to get them to develop the right products, the right packages in the right place and put the marketing dollars behind it needed. You can't just put a new product on a shelf and pull it in six weeks because it didn't sell if you didn't do any marketing. And part of the problem, Joel, is that dairy industry, fluid industry operates on very thin margins. And so there isn't a lot of money there to invest. So we're working with people on, you know, how do we solve for that issue? In other words, there's so many issues that if they were solved, they'd be helpful. Whole milk in schools. That's great. We need that. Products on the go. But how do you get there is the question. And the answer's got to come with some kind of dollar investment. So that's where we see the opportunities. Just as uh, DMI has invested in product development for some of the pizza manufacturers and, and McDonald's, have you been able to do that with fluid products, with uh, any organizations or companies that are developing fluid products? Yeah, in the fluid arena, we have eight partners that uh, we co-develop or develop for them products. And, you know, we enter those partnerships because we're hoping that they can stimulate others to do similar things. You know, we, we've worked with companies that have created and marketed higher protein milk or chocolate milk for refueling with a lower sugar content. So we we have several of those partnerships and where we're focused on the chocolate, the refuel, the recovery and uh, lactose-free, those are growth categories within milk. So lactose-free is something people really desire and they're getting that through the Fair Life product and the lactate product. And the Fair Life product, Joel, is an interesting one because that one has brought about 40% of the Fair Life growth has come from the gallon. But most people who are buying Fair Life because it's more expensive really were on the cusp of moving out of the category. So 60% of the growth of Fair Life has either brought people back from plant-based beverages or people who have just completely left the category altogether. So those are the kind of things we need is attractive packaging, smaller packages, different shapes packages, and a different way to market product. We have to talk about, I'm afraid, the whole plant-based beverage issue. It seems like it's been getting an awful lot of press. The figures that I've seen show that the actual uptake isn't quite as big as the, the press would indicate. How, how do you assess the plant-based beverage situation? 
Yeah, the plant-based beverage, just like 20 years ago with soy, everybody was terribly worried about soy. Soy peaked out at about 5% of the fluid milk category and now is about 2 or 3% on its way down. Almond milk is really hot. Uh, that's now replaced soy. It's probably hit that 5% mark. I think the plant-based beverages have a niche. I think it's a small niche in competition with dairy as a, as a beverage. And I think the larger challenge, though, in the longer term isn't going to be the plant-based food and beverages. It's going to be lab-grown protein. You know, the Impossible Burger is partially lab-grown protein. We're going to see lab-grown protein for cheese displacement from fluid displacement and otherwise. And those startups are incredibly funded. You take one of the uh, meat imposters, let's call them. Uh, they, they've been in business 10 years. They've never turned a profit and they have an $8 billion market cap. So there's tons of money going into things, betting that somewhere down the road, it'll be successful. That remains to be seen. But long and short is on plant-based beverages, yeah, they're, they're a niche and it sounds like they've taken over the dairy category. They haven't. They're still a very small percentage. But I think if dairy offers primary reasons people drink alternative beverages is a misunderstanding of nutritional facts, which we're trying to correct. And we think National Milk through the change of labeling and get FDA to do what they think they should do with labeling. That will be beneficial. But the other is taste. And I think uh, you're starting to see dairy companies, we just worked with Kroger, a variety of tastes in fluid, caramel and otherwise. I think that'll stabilize and, and will grow. We will grow. The plant-based is something we've really got to make sure goes through the rigors of the same safety and testing that dairy products go through. And we've got to be forward thinking in our product development. In talking about the nutritional value of, of milk and the fact that we continue to tell that story, the dietary guidelines are going to be established here for 2020 shortly. Do you see any hope for us in meat and dairy to get a little more acknowledgement that full fat uh, dairy is, is helpful, is a good thing, not a, not a bad thing? This, I think, would be very interesting to you and your listeners. When the guidelines get developed, whether this makes sense or not, they make decisions on the preponderance of the evidence. So if there's one study that shows the benefit of milk fat and there's five studies that counter that, even if they're poorly done. The preponderance of the evidence weighs against us. That's why it's been critical that we funded 59 studies on milk fat and we've got others to fund similar. I'm not sure, I'm not confident that this dietary uh, guideline go around fat will be back, so to speak, which then opens up selling whole milk in schools, which I think is very important. But I feel pretty confident by the next dietary guideline go around that fat will be recognized for the value it has, enough research studies to support it. Well, let's hope that's the, that's, that's the case. As you look down the road, whether it's a full fat research or the concerns uh, about lab-based products, you've talked a little bit about a, a group that you're pulling together to, to look down the road, 2030 group. Talk a little bit about that for us. Yeah, this is really important to dairy industry, dairy farmers, and uh, 
you know, our focus needs to be right here, right now, and doing things to benefit farmers and, and the industry uh, to grow the business. But we have to be aware of what we're going to be facing five and 10 years out. Um, if not, we're going to fall further and further behind where the consumer is and how to deliver food to the consumer. So I'll give an example of that. Within five years, another three and a half billion people on this planet will have iPhones. That'll, that'll mean about seven or eight billion people will have iPhones iPhones, whether they're in Des Moines, Iowa, or uh, Singapore, or somewhere in Africa, or Southeast Asia. They will be ordering what they want, how they want it, where they want it from those iPhones. And companies like Amazon, their goal is within an hour, anywhere in the world, to deliver what you want. Well, what does that mean for our supply chain? What does that mean for farmers? How do we optimize our ability to deliver that? It's a whole different mechanism than grocery stores. We've pulled together the industry and we are doing a study with assistance from outsiders who are expert at future forecasting to determine how will, future, how will consumers by the year 2030 consume food, consume information, how will they get their food? And from that work sometime in the second quarter of next year, we'll have identified what are the key forces that will determine how people will consume that food, as I mentioned, and what type of food. Then what we need as an industry is to leap to those solutions uh, rather than do small increments of change. We need to be in the forefront of developing the products that consumers want in the future, figuring out the delivery vehicles, figuring out the sustainable packaging and, and otherwise. So this is really critical for us. We, as I mentioned earlier, the dairy industry operates on thin margins. So we've really got to be very careful about what the next plant is. Should it be a micro plant near small farms? Should it be a different type of plant than we've ever conceived of before? What type of package is going to be more sustainable? in the long run. As you know, people are starting to reject plastic. So where do we go? Those are the things that this study is intended to answer. Well, that sounds uh, exciting and we'll certainly watch for uh, the information coming out of that work. One last point as we uh, close out our conversation here, you're heading next month to the joint annual meeting of the, the National Dairy Board, National Milk in November. What are you, you going to take the, to the delegates and the members uh, of those organizations? One of the most important things I want to make sure we communicate is, particularly at these hard economic times, is the value of the checkoff. You know, we were put in place by dairy farmers in 1983, and sometimes we forget dairy farmers did that, not Congress. It was dairy farmers because they saw the need for a voice in the marketing chain of farmers to stimulate growth and trust, and we've done that very well. If you look at the numbers since 83 of sales, particularly in the last 18 years, if you look at those, we have increased domestic per capita consumption quite a bit. We've opened up export markets for homes for production. So I want to make sure that they understand the things we've done to increase sales because, you know, I've heard people talk about, well, we shouldn't be doing exports. We, you know, that exports is what's killing us. And they're right to the extent that we need to be able to do exports at a profit, not exports at a loss. But the fact of the matter is we produce a lot more than, than we can consume in America. So we have to have export markets. And the farmers who created the checkoff were smart to keep us out 
of the price business. We can open those markets, we can sell those products, but there's a whole different set of dynamics that national milk producers and others deal with to deal with the price side. So I want to communicate that there's a positive future for the growth of dairy, even with the plant-based beverages, even with lab-grown beverages. We will continue to grow. We have a great story and through product innovation and forward thinking, we will grow the business. Tom, thank you very much for uh, for sharing your thoughts with us this morning. This has been Tom Gallagher, CEO of DMI on Dairy Voice. I'm Joel Hastings for DairyBusiness.com.